I'd like you to turn to Proverbs chapter 24, a wee text of scripture that we want to uh, bring before you as a 40th anniversary challenge this morning. Let's just unite our hearts together, therefore, in a word of prayer as we come to the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, we thank thee again for thy presence. We thank thee for the old hymns we've been singing, the old psalm as well. And Lord, we praise thee for these words. And O God, we pray that I might even, Lord, lay them afresh upon our heart. And we'd ask, Lord, that I would accept of our thanks for being able to read thy word, to have it in our mother tongue. Thou hast preserved it and given it to us. And O, we pray that thou might bless us now as we come to it. Lord, as we'd stand, as it were, just where Israel stood after the wilderness wanderings. O God, we pray that thou might give us a word in season, even at this 40th anniversary. Bless every waiting heart. Oh, we thank thee for those that can look back over those 40 years. And there's others, Lord, and Lord, maybe not so long, but Lord, we all can look forward. And oh, God, we pray that, Lord, we might take new ground for thee. We pray, Lord, that I might challenge our hearts, come and revive our hearts and our souls afresh. Oh, I pray thou would shut us in with thyself. Give me words that must and shall prevail. Lord, give us those prevailing words. Take away anything that is of man. And Lord, we pray that thy name will be honored and glorified. We pray in our Savior's name. Amen. The 12th of December marks the date 40 years ago when the first meeting of the Free Presbyterian Witness took place in the district of Margaret Hill. That followed a gospel mission, which was extended from being a two-week mission to a four-week mission conducted by the late Reverend Harry Kearns. Souls were reached. Souls were saved by God's grace, and others were restored even to their first love. And following that mission, Reverend Harry Kearns writes, there was a desire among the people that we commence a free Presbyterian work in the district. And so having obtained a hall, and having obtained permission to stay further on the site, which is just a short distance from here, a prayer meeting was commenced, a midweek Bible study was started on a Thursday night. There was also an interim committee which consisted of five men. Three of those men are still serving positions today. I noted another one of them was by the name of Jack Patterson. I don't know who he was, but his surname isn't too shabby. The witness extended to two services in 1985, and later on that year, of course, the congregation was constituted within the denomination. This site where we're on now duly was purchased a couple of years later. And today, men and women, young people, and it's good to remember our history. Today we stand at the viewpoint of being able to look back over these 40 years, surely at what God has wrought. Make no mistake about it, God has opened the door. And he has preserved the witness down through these years for a purpose and for a reason. And that is that we might make an impact for God and be that faithful remnant for the cause of Christ and for the glory of God in this area. 
I have entered into the labors of others, and I'm privileged to do so. And I rejoice with you in what the Lord has done, especially those who have been uh, uh, there those 40 years ago, and the memories, no doubt, will flood back. But you know, the danger is that we sit back. And the danger is that we think that we've arrived. The children of Israel, of which we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 2, they had arrived at the banks of the river Jordan after 40 years of traversing through the wilderness wanderings. They were there about to enter into the land of Canaan. But let me say this to you, the work was just beginning. The battles were still to be fought and the enemy was still to be subdued. Oftentimes preachers will liken Canaan to heaven. Well, that's where it falls down because there's no battles in heaven. There's no sin in heaven. There's no enemy in heaven. Because if you read of the children of Israel as they crossed over, they had the battles to fight. They had the enemies to take on. And that was after their wilderness wanderings. And so as we contemplate this important milestone in the history of this congregation and the work of God, then our hearts should be asking What would the Lord have us to consider? Is there a word from the Lord for us both personally and collectively as a congregation? I believe there is a 40th anniversary challenge. And it is based upon the words of verse 21. My son, fear thou the Lord and the King. And meddle not with them that are given to change. Won't you notice firstly the command? It's obvious from my text, especially the beginning of it, that here's a command which is given affectionately as a father would give affectionately a command to his child. This is not something that's merely been suggested or which you can take or leave, but it is in the imperative tense that is to give an order, that is to give a command. There's times when the father will say to the son, Do something. It doesn't mean you take it or leave it. It means a command. You have to carry it out. And so it is even with these words. This command takes on a great importance. Because of the relationship that is intimated. For it says, my son. And as the people of God, we recognize that God in his great love wherewith he loved us has in salvation not only justified us, not only glorified us, because that work has already been done in the mind of God. We are sure of heaven today as if we are already there, even though one day this is still to be realized by ourselves when we reach that glory land. But in God's mind, we are already there. In God's mind, we are already glorified. But in addition to those blessings, God has also adopted us as the children, his children, the children of Jesus Christ, brought from the domain of the devil into the family and fold of God. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. And as children, betimes they need chastising. They need correction. So the Lord chastens his people. And he chastens us because he loves us. A father will chasten his children because he loves them. The world has turned that upside down and got it wrong. But if you love your child, you will chasten them. You will correct them. Lovingly, of course. 
Just as God the Father does. Hebrews chapter 12 and the words of verse 6. It says, Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. I beg your pardon, that's verse 4. But it reads on to verse 6. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? Verse 5 tells us, My son, there it is again, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. And as children need to be instructed in the way in which they should go, and commands need to be given, so the Lord would come to his people, and with gentle, tender words of affection, he would say to his people, My son, my son, As believers, we are in that relationship with our Heavenly Father through the Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. But this command is important because of the requirement. What is it that the Lord would seek to impress upon our hearts? He says, My son, fear thou the Lord and the King. Yes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The psalmist tells us that. But we would do well to consider further what it is to fear the Lord. For let's be honest with ourselves this morning. This land and its people have lost what it is to fear God. It wasn't that long ago in our province that the fear of God was palpable. But it's gone. There was a reverence not too long ago to who God was. There was a reverence in coming to the house of God. There was a reverence in how we conducted ourselves in God's house. There's a reverence in how we offered our worship to God. And the fear of God was embedded in the hearts of God's people. And it was to have an impact upon the ungodly as well. I remember many a time been in a gospel mission unseen. Yet the fear of God was there. How can we define the fear of God? It is that reverence, men and women, that we have for God. is acknowledging that he is the thrice holy God, that he is all sovereign God who doeth according to the counsel of his own will. None can stay his hand or say unto him, What doest thou? It is acknowledging that he is the potter and we are the clay. It is reverencing what God has revealed in his word. It's receiving the word as it is in truth, not a word of man. Not a word of a man. But it is the word of God. You see that's how the Thessalonians received the preaching of the gospel. 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13 says it. Paul writes for this cause also thank we God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us. Ye received it not as the word of men. But as it is in truth the word of God. Which effectually worketh also in you that believe. That's how those people received the preaching. They recognized it was God's word. As we have reached this milestone of 40 years since the first meetings, I would challenge you by asking, what think ye of the scriptures? Have we a fear of openly sinning against God's word and what is revealed to us in it? Have we a reverence for God's word? Have we a reverence when it's read? Have we a reverence when it's expounded? You turn back to uh, Proverbs chapter 8. Look at the words of verse 13. 
We've already touched upon something, how to define the fear of God. Here's something else. The fear of the God, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogancy and the evil way and the froward mouth do I hate. We realize that with the fear of God there comes other things with it. There comes a hatred of evil, a hatred of sin. Nehemiah was such a man. I have to acknowledge that I, I, I particularly love the character of Nehemiah. I love the book. And I read in Nehemiah 5, for example, in verse 15, But the former governors that had been before me were chargeable unto the people, and had taken of them bread and wine, beside forty shekels of silver. Yea, even their servants bear rule over the people. But so did not I because of the fear of God. Nehemiah was a man who feared the Lord and because he feared the Lord he would not give himself to the practices of evil that were prevailing among the governors of that day. He didn't do what his predecessors had done. But instead he was a man who hated sin. He hated evil. Let me ask you, are you such a man or woman? Is there that reverence of God in your heart, that hatred for sin? Romans 3.18 reminds us that the ungodly have no fear of God before their eyes. They don't consider who God really is. They don't fear his awful power. They don't take to heart the words which state, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And so they just go on sinning. They just go on rebelling against the Lord and his word. You know, the fear of God is a deterrent to sinning. It was the fear of offending a holy God that kept Joseph from defiling himself and committing adultery. I read in, in Genesis 37, as a good as a good passage for young people. Joseph was just a young man. Well, we read in Genesis 37 in the words of verse 7, for behold. I've got the wrong verse there, the wrong reference. It'll come to me. 39, sorry. Chapter 39, verse 7. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused, and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master, what if not what it is with me in the house? <clears throat> and he hath committed all that he hath to my hand. There's none greater in this house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph had a fear of God, not merely a fear of Potiphar, but he had a fear of God. Because the fear of God was a deterrent that stopped him. Committing adultery with that woman. And there came a time, young people have had time to go on. There came the time in that passage where speaking was gone and he just took to his heels. And there's right, it's right to say no, but it's also right at times to get out of that situation. And you know, that would happen in our land again if the fear of God was known in a greater measure. It would be a deterrent to sinning. 
Abram, when he went into the country of Abimelech, he told, of course, that Sarah was his sister instead of being his wife. That was wrong. That was a half-truth. That was a lie. But we're also told why he did that. Motivation. Genesis 20, verse 11. Abram said, because I thought, surely the fear of God is not in this place. And they will slay me for my wife's sake. He presumed there was no fear of God there. Where there's no fear of God, there's a lawlessness and there's an openness to sin. But men and women, where there's no fear of God among God's people, then how can we expect it out in the country? And here is a little challenge that the Lord gives to us. My son, fear thou the Lord and the king. And I want you to see within this command there's a right order here. It's fear thou the Lord and the king. The fear of God is to take precedence over everything else. The reverence of God comes first. And when that is right, when our relationship on a vertical plane is right, then so will our relationships be right on a horizontal plane. There will be a correct fear and respect of the human authority on earth when the powers ordained of God are truly a terror to evil. It was so with the apostles in the early church. Acts chapter 5, verse 27. Remember how they were taken and they were imprisoned by the authorities. And says, Then came one and told them, saying, Behold, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them without violence, for they heard the people, lest they uh, feared the people, lest they should have been uh, stoned. And when they had brought them, they sent them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Do you see what Peter said? Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. We ought to obey God rather than man. God was first. Many seem to have got that order the wrong way around today. Many are wrapped up in the things of human authority and power. Dare I say it, it has even crept into the denomination. A fear of man. A fear of public perception is given priority instead of having a fear of God. But the command is clear. Fear the Lord first, then the king. That was the principle of the covenanters in the land of Scotland. They said there's two kings, there's two kingdoms here. But God had to have the preeminence. Have you a reverential fear of God? It's what our land needs. But you know it's what our church needs. is return of that godly fear in the hearts of his saints. I want you to go on with me in this text because you'll notice the caution. What follows are words by way of a caution given to the people of God. For it says, My son, fear thou the Lord and the king, and meddle not with them that are given to change. The caution is with regard to separation. 
The directive given is meddle not. The sense of that word is we're not to engage. We're not to pledge ourselves or intermingle with a certain people. As Moses rehearsed the history of the nation of Israel at the border of the promised land. They were told by God. We've read it this morning. If you go back to that passage in Deuteronomy chapter 2. They were told by God when passing Mount Seir. That they were not to meddle with the children of Esau. You have it in the words of verse 4 and 5. Command thou the people, saying, You are to pass through the coast of your brethren, the children of Esau, which dwell in Seir, and they shall be afraid of you. Take you good heed unto yourselves, therefore. Meddle not with them. For I have not given you of their land, no, not so much as a footbreadth, because I have given Mount Seir unto Esau for a possession. The descendants of Jacob were not to engage themselves with those of Esau. Esau, remember, was that profane person. He was that man who sold his birthright for a mess of pottage. He didn't consider the birthright to be of great importance. And so being hungry, he fed the flesh instead. And so, yet there is a cause for separation as a church and as a people from those who would count the things of God as nothing. Those like Esau who have no relationship or affinity to the Lord are the things of God. The biblical separation that this church was formed upon, which this church preaches, is more relevant today than it ever was. For the word of God still remains the same. And the word of God tells us we are to have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. There are those who would question me. And they would question as to why I might be hard-hitting against the apostasy in the pulpit or some other occasion. There's the scripture. We are to reprove the unfruitful works of darkness. We make no apology for being against ecumenism. And those who would seek to preach another gospel. And when we see how the old denominations have been ensnared with Romanism. Then they can't do anything without them. And when you hear what they preach and what is supposed to be the gospel. Then there should be a lifting up of our hearts in gratitude. That the Lord ever brought the separated witness into being for such a time as this. We're not the only one by the way. But the Lord has brought in the separated witness for such a time. If the Irish Presbyterian Church had never apostatized, there would be no reason for the Free Presbyterian Church. Can I illustrate that even up to date? Because again, the accusation would be made, ah, you're going back, you know, you're going back to J. Davy, 1930s and all of that. We'll bring it right up to date. And I know some of you who come across this and so you'll be able to verify what I'm saying. Sinn Féin. Put the advertisement out. A cost of living support event. It was to be an advice on housing. It was to be benefits and support night. Mental health, well-being, constituency matters. All of that crack. Where was it agreed upon to be held? Tuesday night passed. I'm talking about. Seven to nine o'clock in the night. Hilltown Presbyterian Church. 
the minister in charge, had forgotten to take a walk around the graveyard. He forgot to look at the many graves that those boys put in their graves. He forgot about the mental health of those widows and families that were left behind because of them. And many who had to get out of their housing. And then to state that their murderous campaign was justified. Men and women, that's an up-to-date illustration because that's where appeasement leads to. That's where a false peace leads to. That's where ecumenism gets you. There's a forgetting of God. A forgetting of the Lord. Forgetting of the past. If we don't learn our history, we'll make the same mistakes. The postscript to that, by the way, before I leave it, is it has wrecked the church. There's only one elder I understand who has stayed, the rest is gone. That meeting didn't happen in the church, it had to be moved to a community hall, but the damage was already done. Because it was agreed in the use of the church. And the minister is not in the church. He's looking after it because it's vacant. The separation that God requires men and women is from sin. And that which is not of God, the separation is unto Christ. Outside the camp, gladly bearing his reproach. The cautionary note is offered to those who think it is no longer relevant. If there ever was a day where the church of Jesus Christ needs to put the clear light of day between the deception and the plausible words of those who have a form of godliness but deny the power thereof, then surely it is today. Let it never be said that separation is no longer an issue. There's an ever-increasing just cause for separation from the apostasy and from Romanism in this day and generation in which we live. For as it nears our Lord's return, we are warned that many will be deceivers and many will be deceived. But this caution has to do with a particular sort of people. There's an implication here and it is that we need to be able to discern those who are given to change just for the sake of it. Meddle not with them that are given to change. The church of Jesus Christ ought to not feel itself compelled to comply to the wishes of those who seek to undo all that has been done. To alter for the sake of altering. Of those who are weary of the old and captivated with a new way of doing things. Including the worship of God. And men and women, that is the liberal spirit that is abroad today. The cry is we must do this and we must do that because that's what other churches are doing. And so while I've taken a moment just to major on separation ecclesiastically and I believe I have scripture to do that and it is very relevant. Very relevant when you just a couple of years, was it last year, at a big meeting of the 100th anniversary of the Northern Ireland and Romanism takes the stage along with the other denominations 
on that same platform. But now we take a look at ourselves. Now we take a look at ourselves. Because the spirit is, we've got to do this and we've got to do that because others are doing it. We can dress down. We don't need to carry our Bibles with us. We don't need hymn books. Sure, of the big screen. And the call is for the church to be more user-friendly. And employ all the latest mechanisms of the world so as to encourage the unchurched into our meetings. Men and women, that's the spirit that was akin with Saul. You remember Saul, King Saul, and he heard old Goliath shout his obscenities day after day after day. And then young David comes along and David says, I'll go out and face the, the, the giant Goliath. And Saul says to him, David, I'm paraphrasing it, we must cause you to look like Goliath. Because our only chance of defeating him is by using the same means that he does. And so David, there's my armor. You put it on you. And you take my big sword with you. And you go out and fight Goliath. And so the modern thought today is, we must use the means of the world in order to win the loss. Even if it means setting aside the preaching of the word. Contending for that which is right. Changing things so as to entertain the listener. And to make the meetings more appealing. And just as David would have no part of it. For he threw off the armor. You can just imagine. I, love, I just love picturing David in the big armor of Saul. He'd have been drowned. And he threw it off him. Why? Because he hadn't proved it. He had tackled the lion and the bear beforehand. He hadn't the armor of Saul then. He didn't need it. And he didn't need it this time around as he went out to face the giant Goliath. And so we must do the same. What David had proved in the past was the power of God. And that was what he was going to depend upon against the giant Goliath. David didn't need to change his methods. God gave him the victory. What the church depended upon and rested upon and was tried and tested 40 years ago was the power of God. Prayed down by God's people, supplicating the throne of heavenly grace in all their need. And God gave the victory and God gave the grace to press forward, conquering and to conquer, adding unto the church such as should be saved. And that's why we don't need to mix ourselves up with those who would seek to change our worship and our ways of reaching lost adults and children. Because going forward from this 40th anniversary, Christ's power will be unchanging. And his victory over the devil at Calvary is still as decisive as it ever was. Here's a caution. We must pay attention to. We must denounce any who would seek to change the message of the gospel. Paul brings it out in the most sternest of terms. As he writes to the Galatian believers in Galatians 1 and 8. He says, but though we are an angel from heaven. Preach any other gospel unto you. Than that which we have preached unto you. Let him be accursed. He's really saying let him be anathema. Let him be damned. If we, or even an angel, 
preach any other gospel. That's strong language. The caution is clear. Meddle not with them that are given to change. For notice the words of verse 22, if you would. For their calamity shall rise suddenly. I say, there's a wee note for the unsaved. You know the man or woman, young person, who may think of putting off this God's salvation business to another day, putting off eternal matters to some other time, Proverbs 29 and 1 says, He that been often reproved hardeneth his neck shall suddenly be destroyed. And that without remedy. Behold, now is the day of salvation, young person or older man or woman. Behold, now is the accepted time. You're not guaranteed another day. It is while God's Spirit is striving with you now. And can I say the same to the, to the backslider? Come back now. Come back even this morning. I want you to notice just in final, in closing, the constraint. We can but deduct from these words that the Lord would have his church to be unchanging in the principles of the eternal word that she was formed upon. That means unchanging in the stand for the faith once delivered unto the saints. There's only one true and saving faith. It was the faith of the Old Testament saints as well as it was for the apostles. It was the faith that was rediscovered at the Reformation. It's the faith that is preached in this church from its inception. And there must still be the contending for that same faith in the days that lie ahead. As I said, even in my prayer this morning, not all of us can look back 40 years, but we can all look forward. It is that we, is it a wonder have we lost what it is to contend? There's no stomach to take on the battle. You don't mention having a protest in some churches. That would be frowned upon. We wouldn't be acceptable then. Our forefathers, listen, believed in protesting. You see, they understood Jude's exhortation to believers to earnestly contend for the faith. Some of, uh, of the congregation here came under the ministry of Dr. S. B. Cook. Dr. S. B. Cook believed in protesting. And he still does. Ian Paisley believed in protesting. Willie Beatty, Haven Foster. We can mention our forefathers. For they understood what Jude was exhorting. And the word there, earnestly contending, it is a sense of agonizing. In such a dark day of apostasy, we are to take seriously the defense of our faith. We are to strenuously engage ourselves in contending for the faith. Now what does that look like? It will mean agonizing in the prayer meeting. Church was born out of prayer, by the woman. It'll mean praying for God's blessing to be upon the preached word. It'll mean praying for souls to be saved for God's glory. It'll mean upholding the preacher to strengthen him in the task of proclaiming that word. It will mean we're found bearing a good witness for Christ in our walk and in our talk and everyday life. It'll mean a withholding of support to those who would compromise the message of the gospel, to those who would deny the whole counsel of God. There cannot be any change either in the sounding forth of the message of Christ and Him crucified 
1 Corinthians 1, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us that are saved, it is the power of God. How many have watered down the message of free and sovereign grace until you arrive at what is presented today as a gospel, a gospel where there's no mention of the blood, a gospel where there's scarcely a mention of Christ. Talking to one of my colleagues the other day, and he was referring to a funeral, not in this country, over in Canada. And the funeral, there wasn't one mention of Christ, a Lord at all, in the whole message. Of who he is, of his great work of redemption. There is a skirting around of the truth that we're all sinners in need of God's salvation, in case any are offended. And much of the preaching today has man as the center of the message. May God save us from such. May God save this pulpit from such. And enable us ever to preach Christ and uplift him. You know why? For he said, if I, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. And he was lifted up on that cross as the only saviour of God's elect. He is the only one who could pay the penalty for the sin of his people. He's the only hope. He's the only answer for our congregation, for our nation, for our town, for our land. The constraint in the matter is this. And although ourselves we're prone to change, the hymn writer captures it. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Of ourselves we're prone to be carried away with every new invention of men. And by the way, I'm not against modern technology. I have to embrace it to some extent. But I thank God the Lord hasn't called me to a church where there's big screens up in the sanctuary and there's televisions all over the place. You might think that's a small thing. I think it's a big thing. When I come into the house of God and I ask my congregation to come, I want a place where there's the reverence of God. Not a place that looks like a cinema. And I'm sure you're like me. You're stuck in front of a computer screen enough throughout the week without having to come and face another one. So I'm not against modern technology. But there's a place for it. And we must uplift the Savior. We cannot change. We cannot be carried away with every wind of men's invention. To be those faithful people that God desires us to be. And we must ever look to our God. He alone is the eternal, unchangeable one. Malachi 3 verse 16 says that. Verse 6 says, For I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Aren't you glad that God doesn't change? He abideth and remaineth forever the same. His love knows no change. His mercy and his grace are the same. His hatred against sin is forever the same. If God judged some sin in the days of the biblical narrative, you can be sure he's still against that sin. No matter if it's politically correct or not, no matter if it's socially acceptable or not, God hates sin. He hasn't compromised his principles or his standards or as men are prone to do. 
With the passing of years, the Lord does not grow weary or faint. His eternal purposes and decrees remain the same. And what his heart is set to do, it shall be done. Aren't you glad that the Savior doesn't change? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the same Savior. He's the same faithful high priest who ever liveth. To make intercession for us. He's the same king who reigns supreme. And coming one day to see the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. His promises are the same. They're yea and amen in Christ. And he says to his church. Revelation 3 and 11. Behold I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast. That no man take thy crown. Hold that fast. May God help us. Market Hill Free Presbyterian Church. Not to be like the children of Ephraim. The children of Ephraim being armed. Carrying bows. Turned back. In the day of battle. May we not be like that. But rather be faithful and true. To the cause of King Jesus. Why? For the love of Christ constraineth us. The love of Christ. My son, fear not, fear thou the Lord and the King, and meddle not with them that are given to change. May the Lord be pleased to write upon his heart what has been of himself this morning. For his own glory's sake.